Paul says that that is a misunderstanding of the foundations of the gospel. That if you understood the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus properly, that notion becomes unthinkable to you. Jesus is not coming to claim back 60, 70, 80, 90, even 99% of what Adam lost. He's not coming back to declare a victory over 90% of what Satan has taken. He is coming back for the lot. And every king, especially the devil, who stands in his way will have their head, so to speak, crushed. Jesus is coming back and in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, yes, he purchased our souls, but you're not just a soul. You probably heard it and everybody loves it. It's actually not that great, the C.S. Lewis quote. You don't have a soul. You are a body. You have, sorry. Um, <clears throat> let's restart. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Everyone goes, mm, put it on a mug, get my shirt, C.S. Lewis, love it. It's wrong. You are a human, which is a body-soul composite. You don't have a body as if it's an add-on. You are a soul in body creature by the Lord's making. And so if Jesus is to resurrect, if Jesus is to redeem, if Jesus is to save the whole of his people, that saves our bodies as well. So yes, we'll have livers and kidneys and toenails and hair and skin color and eye color in heaven, in glory. That's coming for us. Anyway, so the the Corinthians had gotten mixed up on this and Paul spends the first few verses relaying the foundations of the gospel because if you get that right, that's your plumb line, everything else is is, is straight. And so he's going to go next week from verse 12 onwards, theologically and philosophically and biblically arguing for the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's going to be a great work of um, uh, uh, time for us to go through the theology of all of that. But this week, we're finishing off um, 1 through 11, where he is talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the effects that had on the witnesses who saw him risen. Let's go back and read. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. May God bless the reading and hearing of his own precious inerrant word this evening. Amen. That's where you give a hearty amen, remember. That's what we do here at Hope Church. So we saw last week that the resurrection, uh, and and, as so much of our faith, is not simply a mythology, is not simply a spiritual truth that we're allowed to believe disconnected from history. God has not given us that easy out of apologetics and defending the faith. 
where if, where, uh, where, where if we prove or if we uh, believe that certain things that the Bible said happened didn't actually happen, but that's okay. We believe in a spiritual resurrection that sort of floats above space-time history. That, that's not a biblical gospel. We, we actually have the, 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 the order from the Lord Jesus to stand on and defend historical fact as revealed in the scriptures. And so he, pro- he, he wasn't proving it. He was just telling them that because the resurrection is a reality, it left behind witnesses. And he said, all of those men there, Peter and the rest of the apostles, the brothers and family of Jesus even saw him and believed him to be risen and worshipped him. And then himself, he was the last apostle to see the risen Lord Jesus. Remember, we, we briefly touched on this. You can ask this for more details later. Jesus came down and gave Paul his very own three-year private seminary degree. Instead of going around Judea like the other apostles had, he met with the Lord Jesus in the desert of Arabia that he tells us about in Galatians. So he met with Jesus, saw Jesus, became a witness of Jesus. And tonight we're going to see the profound effect that the grace of God had on Paul. I'm going to read for us verse 10. This is really quite a summary statement for our time tonight. But I want you to notice how many times he talks about grace and work. Verse 10. But the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Three times in this one verse, Paul recounts the grace of God and relates it to the work ethic of him as a minister of the gospel. We're going to look here at how the grace of God humbled Paul, at how the grace of God empowered Paul, how the grace of God turned him into a zealous, industrious worker, and how it kept him humble, even at the end of all of his fruit. So let's start going through. In verse 9 here, you can see how the grace of God humbled Paul. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is his repeated refrain as he writes to the churches. He's he's frequently reminding them. Or you can remember in 1 Timothy chapter 1 how he tells Timothy, I am the least worthy of all of the sinners on earth. Not even just the apostles. He said, I'm the worst of all sinners, the boss of them. I'm I'm, I'm that guy. He was a humbled man who, who knew who he was because he had encountered the grace of God. This is what the grace of God does to us. It is a painful medicine, the grace of God. We, we need to be careful, although uh, do it recklessly, but carefully understand at least that if you're going to ask for more grace from God, you are in effect asking for pain-filled humility. For us to realize God's grace, which is mercy and favor despite our sin, for us to have a greater understanding of God's grace We first need a greater understanding of our misery and our sin and our weakness and our pathetic, repeated addiction to silly little sins. And the more we open our eyes to that by the Spirit, the more he shows us, the more we revel in God's grace. This is Paul. He became one who was understanding but not overwhelmed by the sinful life that he had lived prior to meeting Jesus. You remember that in Acts 9, we we meet Paul, uh, and we learn in the, subs- uh, in the following chapters that he, why he calls himself so unworthy. I mean, we, we're good Calvinists, right? We know everybody's unworthy of Jesus' grace, but Paul calls himself most unworthy. At least the other disciples had been called from being a fisherman or called from being a tax collector. That was, that was pretty grimy. Or called from being a political zealot and a, uh, 
uh, you know, an insurrectionist? Yeah, sure. That's nothing on being on horseback, uh, assassination deed in hand, chasing men, women, and children, enslaving them, putting them into prison, dragging them back to the capital, and even watching their bodies get driven to a pulp by rocks. That was Paul. That's what he was doing. He was marching into places like this, taking all the people who weren't fast enough to get out, throwing them in prison to starve to death, and beating the young deacons, watch out deacons, beating the young deacons to death. And in the midst of that, full stride against the Lord Jesus Christ, he was saved and converted and infilled with the Holy Spirit. He was overwhelmed with the grace of God towards him. He was overwhelmed with his own unworthiness. And this is what we must understand the grace of God does. Have you received this grace? Have you been somebody who, though you lived in sin and you had you know, your good reasons for being a, a non-Christian and, and you had your own uh, uh, past life and maybe trauma and maybe experiences and you had good arguments and yet you had a reason to be a non-Christian but you met the Lord Jesus and every one of those were shattered into smithereens. And all of your, your failures and your sin and your unrepentance and your rebellion against God that had piled up so high and you try to ignore it because you, your conscience would keep on screaming at you and you, you, you cover it up and you turn a blind eye. But that guilt, that sin came crumbling down because the blood of the Lord Jesus washed you clean. That moment when that happened and, and we were so filled with the amazement at God's grace, have you lost that? Have you started thinking of God's goodness towards you and mercy towards you as just at least a little bit earned I mean, you've, you've been pretty good. You haven't done any of the big sins for a while. You're one of the best in the room. You can compare your knowledge with other people's knowledge and your past life with other people's past life. Friends, none of us compare to Paul in work, in labor, in rewards, in glorious godliness. And yet none of us can compare with his humility. This is what the grace of God does. It humbles us to have a not a worthless view of ourselves, but a lowly, humble view of ourselves. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, which loved us eternally in union with Christ, which predestined and elected us, which was merciful to us up until our conversion, and then called us into the gospel, made us new people, gave us his Holy Spirit. It was his grace which converted our lifestyle. It was his grace that justified us. It was his grace that called us into union with Jesus. It is grace. From the first to the last in the Christian life, everything is God's merciful grace. <clears throat> now, where do you think Paul would go next? Where do you think he would go next? If he's making big on grace, what's the next point you think he's usually going to make? Well, if you're talking with a friend, maybe asking about their prayer life, asking how their Bible reading's going, you're just, you're just checking in on them, and they start talking, you know, I'm just glad God's gracious, super, super, super patient, not judgmental like you, and really, really gracious and patient and merciful, what's the point they're about to make? That they're not doing anything right, anything good, anything godly, anything, you know, but it's so great that God's gracious. Not Paul. And by the Holy Spirit, not us, church. Paul goes to talk about the, from the grace of God that humbles him, straight to the transforming power of that grace by the Spirit and the power of his resurrection. Look what he says in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. How many people would use that exact phrase to excuse unrepentant sin? Well, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, it's all grace. Don't expect change. Don't demand change. Don't, ex don't, don't try and come alongside and help. It's grace. 
No, don't expect me to be bold, expect me to be soft and loving and, 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 and excuse evil and all of that because it's all about grace after all. And grace is opposed to God's law. So people think. But here Paul is saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And what I am is, he will say in another chapter of this very same book, he calls himself a chief master builder. Somebody whose who's building up of the church was precise, was careful, was expertise in the way that he would build the church on the foundation of Christ, the word of God, electing elders, leading people to holiness. He said, I was a chief master builder by the grace of God. Not me, but by his grace. He calls himself in so many of the letters that he writes. He introduced, just, just think of this. He has the audacity to write to people whose brothers or sisters may well yet be already in heaven because of Paul, right, and his strong right arm of fellowship with a stone. He has the audacity to write to them and call himself, in an introductory sentence, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that pride? Isn't that just hubris and, and audacity beyond this world's comprehension that he would do that? An abuser of the Lord's people will now call himself one of the authoritative scripture writers sent from God for your sanctification. Rich, right? Because we think if, if he was really humble, he'd keep on bringing up his past sins. He'd keep on, he'd keep on you know, not putting himself forwards and just holding him back. And, 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 and he wouldn't use his gifts because he, he remembers his old sins. And, and that he sort of lets himself be identified with his old sins so that nobody can point to him and remind him uh, of them. You know, no, one, no one will point out and remind me of my, my sins because I'm always pointing them out, and I'm always using them as excuses. He doesn't do that. In fact, it's not actually humility which reminds ourselves and identifies ourselves with our old sinful past. That's pride. It's humility which accepts what God has said about us in Jesus Christ and goes on in humility to identify yourself the way God identifies you. A sinner? Yeah, Paul doesn't deny that. Still fallen? Not yet perfect? Absolutely. But an apostle of Jesus, commissioned? You bet. How do you define yourself? How do you, how do you put yourself forwards? How do you think of yourself? Are you constantly under the, the false guise of humility, calling yourself, identifying yourself, down, degrading yourself as some useless, worthless sinner with no gifts, no, no power, no hope, no, no leadership, no spiritual energy whatsoever? And, and I used to do this, and I'll identify myself with this, and I'll, I'll never take, take what the commission that the, the Lord would give to me. Is that you? That's not humility. Receive what God has said about you in Jesus Christ. You're a justified sinner made right in the eyes of God, given his spirit, and given a mission to serve on. That's what Paul does. Grace made him what he is, and though it may seem like pride to some, it really was the deepest of humilities. When we understand grace, we allow ourselves and others to be identified by God's mercy and not their own sin. We become more gracious towards one another and more believing of what God says about us. He will elsewhere call himself a slave of God and by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul would say. He called himself an apostle, a slave, a master builder because what grace does is not just forgive us. The grace of God does not just come to pardon and forgive. The grace of God also comes to empower and infill and send. And Paul knew that. 
Paul didn't use grace as an excuse for sin. Paul used grace as an excuse for transformation. How often the excuse uh, people might put forward is that, again, grace is opposed to God's law. You get a little bit of holiness, um, but, you know, grace is for the other days. There's hard work and holiness, and grace is for all the days that you're still a sinner. Friends, in Paul's mindset, he says all of the Christian life is grace, and what ought to be growing up out of that bedrock of grace is holiness, godliness, and zeal. That's Paul's understanding of grace. Not an excuse, but an empowerment. He says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, that the grace of God has come, it has appeared, it has arrived, training us for godliness. That's the grace of God. We're going to keep on seeing the different ways that that he starts pulling this out. Start looking at uh, the, the, the next part of verse 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's not an excuse because, he says here, this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So this this grace of God that came, it turned him into a worker. The grace that humbles you, the grace that transforms you, turns you into zealous laborers for the God of our salvation. He says it was not in vain, that is the grace of God that came to me, did not fail to have an effect. Let us remind ourselves absolutely You do not receive grace because of good works. You do not receive mercy, justification, forgiveness, or salvation because you finished a list of do's and don'ts, because you did anything good whatsoever. Let's just remind ourselves what we sung so heartily. It is entirely Jesus, his finished work, his death on the cross, and the mercy of God that saves us. Then we begin to work. But let's not forget that part that we must begin our work as we become born again in Jesus Christ. So we must become workers like Paul. He says here that I worked harder. Again, just hear the pride of this guy, right? Who's he? He says, I worked harder than any of them in verse 10. Any of who? Really, the context is he's talking about everybody else that saw the Lord Jesus. Everyone else who saw him that first weekend and the next 40 days and were there at Pentecost, name one of them who saw Jesus, I worked harder than them. He's not being rude. He's not being proud. He just has a set of eyeballs and and a brain that can do some quantitative measuring and can measure things up. How many kilometers have those guys ridden or walked after being beaten senseless by the Jews and his back is literally, literally still flappy bits of jelly, his spine exposed as he walks on the Asian highway towards Rome, into Macedonia, and down into Philippi, and Thessalonica, and then down to Athens, and then Corinthians. He, he arrived in Corinth to preach to them on the back of multiple beatings and fleeing from the law. Who else did that? We, we don't have the accounts of Many others of these apostles working as hard as him. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives this list. This list of his own sacrifices. And you have to understand the context. He's not just boasting. In fact, he says throughout the passage, he's like, look at you making me talk like a madman. I'm not usually like this. I don't usually list what I do. But there are false brothers among you who say I'm lazy, who say I'm soft, and who say I'm not an apostle. 
If the gloves are on, I'm getting in the ring. Bring it on. He spits out his mouth guard. It's, it's time to just fight. And he just lists what he's done. He goes, that's fine. Let's compare. This sounds worldly, fleshly, and a little bit sinful. Decide for yourselves. Here's what he says. He goes, I have far greater labors. Far more. Now, he's comparing himself here to the false apostles who are all prissy, sitting in a nice cushioned office while he's working hard from a, from a prison. But he's comparing with them, not the rest of the apostles in this section. But he says, far more imprisonments with countless beating. You ever lost count of how many times you've been beaten up? How many times have you been beaten up for Jesus? I bet you, if you know, if it's been at all, you at least know how many times. He's countless. He's had his head knocked that many times. All of the memory is gone. It's just remembering scripture. Countless beatings. Often near death. Often near, how's that? Often near death. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24, he continues. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. He'd been whipped down to the bone, leaving flesh chunks on the courtroom floor with whips no less than five times he's not even finished his work yet. He's not dead yet. He's still got to get his head chopped off, thrown in prison, taken on a ship, beaten up by a crowd. There's plenty more to come. Five times he got whipped. How many people would just stop here and go, Paul, I, think you're, I don't think you're called. Have you considered another ministry? Maybe widow's ministry. Maybe homeless ministry. I don't think the preaching thing's for you. God's clearly sending you a sign through the sufferings that this isn't the way for you. Not Paul. He says, look at how much I'm suffering for the Lord God. Look at how much work he is demanding that I put in and how much he demands that I die, that I might rise again to more service the next day. This is my calling. Uh, I say this all the time to leaders of ministries. Never, never, as you start to take steps towards service for the Lord and trying to win souls and, and, and do what the Lord is calling you to do, never take difficulty as a sign that God's saying no. This is the default for so many people. You try things, there's closed doors, and then a well-meaning friend will advise you. Maybe God's saying that it's not the timing. Now, well, we need to stay in step with the Spirit and always listening to, to wisdom from others. Never conclude from hardship that God's saying no. Conclude from hardship always that God is saying jump higher, work harder, run faster, dig deeper. He's testing you. The reason you put on extra weights onto a, onto a guy working out is not so that he gets the lesson and stops, so that he puts more in, digs deeper, and lifts harder, he or she, of course. I'm, I'm not only men or weightlifters. Here we go, verse 25. We're not even finished. Verse 25, it keeps going. Three times I was beaten with rods. See, he has to, he has to categorize the beatings. One was with a nine-tailed whip, and there's another category of rods. Fun. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, or he's a traveler, in danger from rivers, even the nature is after him. Rivers, I'm at danger. I'm at danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Rivers and seas. He doesn't just categorize all water. Everywhere he goes, he's suffering. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all of these, 
there is the daily pressure on me for the anxiety for all of the churches. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That is why Paul is not boasting here in a prideful sense. He's boasting in the grace of God, and he lists that, and we just see his weakness. Yet that is precisely what grace does. It empowers us and allows us to see our own fallenness, our own weakness, but the glorious power of God. Paul had more souls won, more churches planted, more distance covered, more sacrifices. Right? He didn't even get married because he wanted to devote his life to the Great Commission. More writing of letters. He endured more constant hardships. This was Paul. And why? Because he received more grace. That's what grace does. We, we, might, we might hear that list and go, geez, Paul's, Paul's a legalist, isn't he? Paul received so much law. It's probably his upbringing. Probably went to one of those fundamental Reformed Baptist churches that kept on preaching what they need to do, need to do, need to do. And he just needs to learn. What would you advise Paul? He rocks up to your Bible study one night. He tells you what he's doing, how many nations he's got on his to-do list, how many thousands of tracks he's got in his bag, how many sufferings he's got laid up for him. You would tell him, would you? You would tell him, man, you need an understanding of God's grace. Look at, how, look at how hard you're working. Don't you understand that you're justified in Christ? Look at how hard you're striving and zealously you're working and how much you're bleeding. Don't you understand that Jesus bled for us, brother? And the understanding of Paul, the distinction that we have to have in our hearts and our minds is that what Jesus has won at the cross is finished and that doesn't get the job delivered. Jesus finished the payment and then commands that by the Spirit, we do the delivery in the Great Commission of the gospel to the ends of the world. So that grace does not mean we bank on the justification of Jesus and become lazy. It means that we bank on the justification of Jesus and rest from all works to get ourselves saved. And because we don't need to work to get ourselves saved, we run with endurance the race set before us. This is the distinction in Paul's mind that made him such a weapon for the Great Commission. We often will think that, that grace is water to zeal. You've got a hardworking young guy in the church. And you, nobody tell him how forgiven he is. He'll, he'll stop working. You know, we just got to prod people. Vic preached on this amazingly this morning. You just got to keep prodding people with law and legalism because heavens knows what will happen if everybody understands how, how forgiven they are. Nothing will get done. The windows will start getting dirty. The band will stop rocking up early, getting up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning. People won't keep donating. There'll be nothing because everyone will realize they don't need to do it to be saved. Now, Paul, the grace of God is fuel to the fire. The resurrection of Jesus is fuel to the fire for working. Misunderstood grace is water to the fire. A misunderstanding of the resurrection is water to the fire. If we think Jesus has done it all, it is finished, therefore let's sit still, we've misunderstood the resurrection. If we think he's in heaven, he's got the power, he's on a throne, I'm not, I won't help him. You know, people say, have you gotten this in the office? I'd rather not do a bad job at it, why don't you just do it? I think that'd be the best thing for the team. You know, it's really just an excuse to keep on doing nothing, getting good at nothing. The husband who, who, who intentionally does a terrible job at dishes so he never gets asked again, you know what, babe, you're just so much better at that than I am. You can do it. And how often we do this to our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, you're on the throne. You know, you got all the power. You rose from the dead. 
You got this, Jesus. Is that what the finished work of the cross proclaims to you? You've misunderstood grace. You've misunderstood the the implications of the resurrection. It is those who understand the grace of God and the power of the resurrection that run the hardest and the fastest. Because we are not running for God's love, but from God's love. We are not striving to receive God's grace, but we are fueled by that which we have in infinite abundance. Like Paul, we need to see that the finished work of the gospel means that the road ahead is paved for your sacrifices, paved for your labors, paved for all of your zealous, single-minded effort to be fruitful. He has gone ahead and he has tilled all of the ground so that anything you sow, any seed you sacrifice and put into the ground will come up fruitful. Often, often, humble, zealous faithfulness in ministry will be called pride by the lazy. Often. Jesus heard that. Peter and the apostles heard it. Paul hears it. Athanasius heard it, Luther heard it, Calvin heard it, John Knox heard it, Charles Spurgeon heard it, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson. Find me one person who was zealously set on their calling from the Lord that wasn't accused of being prideful self-gloria in their day. You won't find one. For the lazy love to throw rocks at what they cannot compete with. There's a competition for them. But for those set on the finished work of Jesus, set on the commission that he left us, often they're called prideful and arrogant. Let me tell you a few reasons here why, why Paul is connecting the grace of God and work in the context of the resurrection. There's sort of three elements here. It's, we're talking tonight about the grace of God empowering for mission, but it's in the overall context of the resurrection. So let me ask, what is it about the resurrection particularly? Like what, why, why isn't he talking about that in, when he talked in chapter 1 about the cross? Why is he bringing up grace and work ethic and zealous industry in the context of the resurrection? He's got a few reasons. Number one, it's because specifically of the resurrection, it received, it, it received, <clears throat> not doing that again this week. I'm going to get this one. It's a big word. It relieves fear of sacrifice of the body. We, we, maybe you don't think about this. Maybe others do. That in this life, when it's all about devoted to self-care and looking after your body, and if this is your temple to the God of self, then, then God forbid you would do anything that will bring about its decay or, or stress or stretch or, or strenuous activity for the Lord. I mean, this is one life. This is all I have. This body needs to be protected. But the resurrection screams at us. You're getting a better one. Way better. It'll, it'll, it'll be you, it'll be this one, but it's going to upgrade more than you can. It's dialed up to 11 at the resurrection. It is coming, and you don't need to worry about the, the, the long life of this body. Entrust it to the Lord. Our days are numbered. Jesus would say that the stress and anxiety we wake up with will not add a single day to your life. Entrust it to him. Richard Baxter was a Puritan uh, uh, Reformed pastor, and he, he wrote this book called The Reformed Pastor. And, and in a day when so many people, in fact, so few pastors, would do the work of pastoring their church. They would get up, they'd give an hour and a half long homily about understandable 
theological gibberish that no one living a real Christian life would understand. They'd go home, do study all week, not see anybody else during the week. And he implored them to, to just add more hours to their week or, and, and shorten their sermon, make it more practical, visit the people in your church, evangelize in the city that you guys... He would implore them to do this and people would come back and, in their day in this, in this prosperous, um, uh, 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 you know, very proper sort of Anglican day. And, uh, but, but I'll get tired I might even shorten my life if I work as hard as you're saying, make as little as you're suggesting I do and and work for the Lord. I I will shorten my life. And he told them, yes. And how glorious it is to shorten a life to the glory of God. Everything that was lost will be given back a hundredfold in heaven. That's what the resurrection does. It relieves the fear of decaying this body. Secondly, it removes the need to gain all that we can down here. The resurrection tells us this is not the final resting place. The resurrection tells us that this life is not all that there is. You don't just live one lifetime to which the necessary conclusion is make it the best you can. Aim for your own self and all of your pleasure and all of your glory. Get as much as you can accumulated wealth-wise prestige, toys, all of that, because this life is the one that you're made for. The resurrection tells us, don't care about it. Be wise and invest well, but but do not hold anything with firm grip here. If it can be sacrificed for the gospel, there's a life coming where we receive. This is not our final home. Number three, the resurrection and the reason that it gives us a work ethic is because it removes the fear of future sin in service. How many of us might be held back from putting our hand to to labor, getting dug into ministry, either formal or informal, sharing the gospel, discipling others, uh, preaching on the streets even, doing anything like that because you're just certain. second you open your mouth, as soon as you start getting a bit of responsibility, as soon as you, you start getting busy, you're going to start sinning in different ways. You'll be proudful when something goes well. You get stressed and you yell at people that you love when, when that happens. And you're gonna, you've got so much wrong that, that you'll, you'll stuff up everything you touch. Friends, the resurrection tells us, yep, and probably, and worse than you think. You're going to do it worse than you realize. But every sin that you fear in the future has been imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ and paid for in the past. That it's still sin. And this doesn't justify any of your sin, but the cross of Christ justifies you. And the resurrection tells you there is future sin that you don't know about, that the Lord does, and when it comes, you will have to learn the lesson that it was forgiven already. You'll trust and throw yourself on the grace of God, and serving heartily is enabled by that understanding. Don't be afraid of future sin that might come up If you serve Jesus more heartily, he's aware. He knows he's working with earthen vessels. We get glorified then. For now, he continues to be gracious and merciful. Fourthly, the resurrection promises us the energy we need for that spiritual service. If we think of of working harder and laboring uh, more zealously, and and, and you might even start imagining different opportunities you've given up in the past or or different ways that you might be able to make yourself more busy for Jesus, and and one of the the preeminent worries might be how how much energy that's going to take 
and how tired you're going to be and how, 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 how weak you will be spiritually and you'll be stretched thin and, and probably less godly all round. But the resurrection tells us that God specializes in empowering dead things. Even if you're a corpse, the resurrection promises you God can make you into a living hard worker. God's spirit gives life to these weak bodies. That's what Romans 8 tells us. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then though your body is dead because of sin, you will receive life because of the spirit of life. No matter how tired you're afraid of being, the Holy Spirit can empower you and energize you in his service. The resurrection reminds us of that. Number five, the reason that Paul is connecting hard work to the resurrection is because it removes excuses for the ungifted. You may be, let's use this analogy again, and I won't tell you who, but some of you fit this category, and I love you. Some of you are as gifted as a corpse, wrapped up in linen, put in a tomb. And that's fine. Because even you, God can empower by his spirit, give gifts to and make useful and usable and, and, and make, to be made a weapon on the mission that Jesus left his church. You need to hear that, you need to be encouraged by that, and you need to bank on the grace of God. He brought life out of a dead body. His name is Jesus. My weakness, my lack of gifts can be empowered by his spirit. Number six, resurrection leads to hard work because it removes the fear of no reward later on. I know that the temptation comes up that you love this money. It's a great car that you really want to get, and it's an upgrade. There's only this amount more, and I know there's missionaries who need it, or I know that this money could go to those in need, and I know that there's certain things that the church might be able to do with this money for the glory of God, but I, I love stuff. I love this money. I love my time. I like my Sunday sleep-ins. Call it what you want. We all have those things that our flesh would pull us back for, and the resurrection tells us that everything we sacrifice will be rewarded for later. As the psalm, which was opened up in this service, Psalm 126. Those who sow the seed with tears, those who throw seed into the ground so much that it's, it's a sacrifice, it hurts. You wanted to turn that into bread, but you'll go hungry to throw it into the ground. Give it just a few months. They will come back in season shouting for joy. The more they sowed, the more they get to harvest and bring back to the family. The more that you sacrifice, the more Jesus will reward you for in heaven and even in the spiritual kingdom that he is bringing to this world. And number seven, the resurrection removes the fear of final defeat. The resurrection is the declaration echoing through the cosmos and around all of the nations of this tiny globe that there is a king who defeated death and therefore no enemy is able to stand in his way. And we are those who are following in his wake. We're charging the line of the enemy behind a king who has sealed and promised immortal and eternal, unchanging life and absolute victory. Do you see this? That there is nothing you can do in the Christian life which is vanity, which is no use, which was wasted, because there is no future loss coming for the Christian church. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not stand against it. And on and on, the, the church continues to grow and, and infect the world and improve the world and bless the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not stoppable. Even 
even when the kings of this earth chop off your head like they did to the apostle Paul, all you get is gain. Because now you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the church get when its leaders and its missionaries and its apostles are chopped to pieces and bloodshed? We get growth. We're told in the scriptures that it's by the blood that we overcome. We die, sure. The Lord's army marches forwards with greater and greater momentum. The resurrection confirms and seals all of this for us. And that is why he's tying it to a work ethic. Let's close up now as we look at verse 11. This grace of God, which humbles us, brings us to salvation, transforms us and makes us workers, continues ongoingly to keep us humble. You might not initially notice the humility here in verse 11. Verse says, uh, Paul says, whether then it was I or they, look, the important thing is that we preached and you believed. But there's humility undergirding and surrounding that entire statement. Because Paul is the only one of the 12 who preached. He's the only one of the witnesses of the risen Jesus who did preach in Corinth. He's speaking to the Corinthians and saying, you know what? I don't even really remember which apostle preached to you. Was it me? Was it them? It's just unimportant. The nature, the, the reality, the important part of it is who was preached, and that's Jesus. But, but nobody else got beaten up. Nobody else rode on the horses, walked on the highway, and went to Corinth. It was only Paul. But he does not use that as a badge. He simply points them back to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not who preached, but it was what we preached. It is not who you followed, but it is who you believed. It is not who you heard, it's who you heard preached of. Friends, we all need to drive this deeper into our Christian psyche. No matter how and maybe you're a veteran right now. Maybe you're a Christian who has, who has served decades and you have fruit in your wake. That you know there is reward coming still today. You'll remind yourself by the Spirit, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And whether it was me or somebody else, the important part is that the Lord brought fruit in his kingdom. Maybe you're a Christian who is, who is still trying to learn how to serve and, and zealously grow, uh, grow and work in the kingdom and in the church of God. You need to remember, however many souls the Lord brings into the kingdom through your preaching, however many people God grows the church by because of your labor, however many missionaries get sent out on the back of your offering, it doesn't ultimately matter. Just praise the Lord for his grace, and know that where Jesus is preached, that is your reward. And of course, this reminds us that if you're not a Christian tonight, you need to not try and hear all this work of zeal and work and labor and go, I can do that. If that's what it takes, I'll do that. I will, I will fulfill the law. I will work hard. I will strive. And Jesus will see that I'm worthy. Don't start there. Start right back at the beginning. The whole life of a Christian is grace, but it starts with the grace that meets you with nothing in your hands. Don't try and impress God with law keeping. Don't try and bring anything to the Lord about, about what you can offer him, about what good things you've done. God doesn't want to hear it. It's all, it's all dust in his scales. Bring your sin. Bring your confession of weakness. Bring your unworthiness and bring your, your, your weakness because God is the one who empowers and God is the one who graciously forgives. He will only be the savior of sinners. He will not be the savior of the righteous. So come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to take your sins, who was killed under the wrath of God to pay for your sins, 
who rose again from the grave to confirm to you that your sins are done away with. Eternal life awaits you. The Holy Spirit has promised you. Now work and live to the glory of the risen King Jesus. This is what is important. This is what we preach. This is what we love. The Lord Jesus Christ. Can you bow your heads? I'm going to pray over us. And I want those of us who are among us who have not yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I'm praying that you would, you would beg and ask the Lord in, in your own heart that he would give you grace and faith and repentance. And afterwards, uh, you can come and talk to Vic or myself or a friend who brought you. You can talk to them, uh, to us about becoming a Christian. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. If we were at any point shown the full extent of our sin, we would be destroyed in hopelessness. That we would be crushed with the weight of it. Lord, we thank you that you have not seen fit to do that, but you have instead given Jesus who did bear the full weight of it, who with his divine eye was able to know and understand the full guiltiness, the full vileness of every sin that was upon him at that moment. Lord, he knew my sins. He knew the intricate thoughts, motives, and, and, and details of every sin that any Christian would ever commit. And Lord, he, with a heart of grace and the heart of a servant, went forward and paid for every last sin. That as his blood was shed, we were confirmed and promised grace that we would not have to die, that he could die in our place, that he could suffer in our place, and that we could be rewarded because of what he had done. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And I pray that as we understand deeper and deeper the reality of that grace, the depth of that grace, the riches of your grace, the eternal nature of your grace, the infinite nature of your grace, the width and the breadth and the height of your grace, Lord, that you would empower us not to strive for the love of the Father, but strive as empowered children of the Father. Lord God, I, I just ask that if there would be anyone unbelieving here tonight, that you would bless them with salvation in Jesus. You would break their heart over their sin, give them faith to trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. You would change them and transform them. Put them onto this mission that we are all on for the, in the joy and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name our dead, buried, and risen, victorious Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen.